this series, The Unlawful State. The podcasts are part of a wider series of articles investigating what seems to be an epidemic of unlawful practices by UK public bodies. In the podcast, we interview some of the most pioneering NGOs and we learn from them about how they are using the law to fight back. I'm Charlotte Thripland, editor of Open Justice, part of Open Democracy. I will be your host for this series along with my colleague and journalist, Oscar Rickett. Hello, my name's Oscar Rickett. I'm a journalist. I'm speaking today to Carrie Gerstheimer, who is the Director of Information and Advice at MENCAP, the National Learning Disability Charity. The purpose of our project here is to talk about an increase in unlawful decision-making over the last 10 years at both the central and local government level. In its last budget report, the Association of Directors of Adult Social Services said that by the next year, by 2020, only 5% of local authorities were fully confident they will be meeting their legal duties to provide care. Since 2010 and the incoming Liberal Democrat Conservative Coalition government, 60p in every pound received by local authorities from central government has been cut. So we're talking to Carrie partly to understand what organisations like MENCAP can do in a climate like this and to explain the situation that we are in. And I would like to start by asking Carrie to explain, just for context, what a learning disability is. Firstly, a learning disability is a lifelong disability. It's an intellectual disability um, and it can lead to challenges with everyday living and learning. And how, what kind of care is, is then required for someone with, with a learning disability, perhaps in comparison to someone with a physical disability? Somebody with a learning disability um, may need prompting support in order to manage finances or um, navigation support in order to get to the supermarket. They may need support with managing relationships safely um, and, you know, just with every different um, aspect of life, perhaps prompting support to get dressed. So the, the individual may be able to get physically get dressed, but may need some support or some reminding um, of, of how to, to do that and perhaps to look presentable. Right. And so f- for context, for, for the article that's connected to this podcast, I visited a man called Shiraz Khan, who's 41 years old, and he is currently housed in a bed and breakfast in, in Northolt in the far west of London. He experiences all of those difficulties. He struggles. He can't budget for himself. His, his girlfriend steals money for him, and she's addicted to bingo, and she needs social care herself. He struggles to plan his day. He, he experiences all the difficulties that you have just described, and yet he is currently not in receipt of any form of social care. Um, it, it occurs to me that now might also be a good time to, to ask what social care is. So social care is um, the other side of, of the coin from the health service. So unlike... Um, healthcare, social care is not free at the point of use. Um, it is the support that older people and disabled people need in the community in order to live a fulfilled life. So at its most intimate, social care might be about personal care, so support to to wash um, or, 
people to be fed. Um, and at its most fun, it might be support for somebody with a learning disability who is a young person who wants to go out clubbing. And that's how they manage and maintain relationships um, and, and, and play a meaningful part in, in their community. Um, so it, it can include a range of of different activities, but it's all about making sure that people who have additional needs and um, support needs can live fulfilled lives in the community. And who who provides social? Social care is usually arranged by a, um, your local authority. And I want to pick up on something you just said because it occurs to me that occasionally people have an idea that if you have a learning disability or a physical disability, you are somehow a sort of drain on society. This is a line that we see, you know, particularly perhaps in the right-wing press. The, the, the point that families who I've spoken to have made about the, the people in their families who, who have these needs is that social care allows these people then to give back to society, to participate in society, to live kind of a fuller and more active life. And that seems to me to be a sort of important point to make, and particularly in the context of these cuts. What I would say is that, um, sadly, only 5 to 6% of people with a learning disability are in work. And I suppose that is a pretty good indicator of the um, discrimination that people with a learning disability do experience in our, in our society today. Do we have any idea how many people in the country are currently in receipt of this kind of social care do we have any idea of how many people are how many people's needs are met currently so there are 1.5 million people with a learning disability living in this country only about 179,000 people are in receipt of publicly funded social care so that gives you a, a, a bit of an idea of, um, you know, the level of need that goes unmet. Unfortunately, unlike for older people, um, there isn't a, currently a, a statistic for the numbers of people with an unmet social care need. The data's simply not there, and I suppose that's a story in itself. Um, that the, there is inadequate data being captured around. Um, people who are of working age and who are disabled and who have an unmet social care need. And I think that there should be, um, you know, I would urge government that there is a real need to be collecting that data because I think that people are being put at risk because they're not in receipt of the social care that they really do have a need for. There's a sense that we all have that people are not being treated the way that they should be but there's maybe not always a sense that they're actually being treated unlawfully you know that 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 what is happening is is against the law or, or can be described as unlawful and i i wanted to ask you about at what levels these unlawful decisions are happening and what pieces of legislation they relate to so now i'm right in thinking that a lot of the unlawful decision making that we are seeing relates to the Care Act of 2014, is that correct? Yes, that's right. And, and um, I would say also the, the Mental Capacity Act. The father of a 20-year-old boy in receipt of social care in Dorset told me that this is a good piece of legislation, but he had high hopes for it, particularly because when it was brought in, David Cameron was a prime minister 
whose own son had sadly died, who, who was disabled himself. But that then what he experiences day to day is something that is just a million miles away from, from what the social, from what the Care Act aspires to be. I think that's right. I think, um, you know, the, the Care Act was um, a well thought through piece of legislation. Um, it was the result of collaboration across the third sector, the commercial sector, um, you know, public bodies. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it, it's a visionary piece of le- legislation in many ways. Unfortunately, the money's not there. Um, and so local authorities who are struggling to, um, to manage their finances are acting unlawfully in order to manage their budgets. So we at Mencap have a helpline. Um, we take about 12,000 calls a year um, and about 35% of our calls relate to community care. Um, and we frequently see that people are having their right to social care denied um, or that um, the, the, the requirements and the legal duties that are set out in the Care Act are not being followed. My legal team has a really staggering 98 full or partial success rate with our legal cases. Um, you know, my colleagues are excellent lawyers, but I think that that's really indicative of the scale of the unlawful decision making that we're seeing. Can you can you talk about the um, the ways in which these unlawful decisions manifest themselves, and, and perhaps begin by talking about assessment? Sure. So there there are es- essentially four stages to um, securing social care. Um, so the gateway to social care, if you like, is is the assessment stage, um, and the Care Act sets out certain requirements around what that assessment should look like. It should be carried out um, by somebody who is suitably qualified to assess you, for example. Um, And we see, sadly, um, because again of cuts, um, a lot of the specialists who were previously employed by local authorities um, are are no longer there. um, and, And assessments are too often being carried out by people who are not suitably qualified to assess um, people with a learning disability or indeed other um, types of needs. Um, We're also seeing too often um, assessments being carried out without advocates present um, and it's not uncommon for somebody with a learning disability to be suggestible Um, and so if that assessment isn't carried out by a specialist with an advocate present um, then you know, if if the person who's being assessed really doesn't understand um, the impact of the answers that they're giving, or um, or or indeed the question that they're being asked, then there's a great risk that that assessment won't be carried out properly. This then, I imagine, manifests itself at the stage of creating a plan for someone who may be in need of social care. Could could you? Am I correct in thinking that? And could you could you explain a little bit about what that might mean? Sure. So, what happens um, when you're when if you go to your local authority and ask for social care? The first thing that happens is you have an assessment. 
The second thing that happens is the local authority will carry out an eligibility assessment. um, And that's the way that the local authority will ration um, social care because they can't afford to provide care to everybody. The next thing is they'll do a charging assessment to determine how much you will have to pay towards the cost of your care. And then finally, they will arrange a care and support plan to meet your eligible needs. Now, what we see again is that that care planning process is, um, you know, sometimes carried out by somebody who's not suitably qualified. Um, sometimes that car- that's carried out without um, a- an advocate present. Sometimes what we see is that actually that that care and support plan is just not appropriate to meet needs. Sometimes there'll be delay, um, and you know, delay is. A really effective way of a local authority um, managing their budgets. Um, we too often um, see families being told that a placement is too expensive. But actually, if there's no alternative on the table, um, then there is a duty for the local authority to pay for that too expensive placement. In speaking to families, I have they have told me, firstly, that social workers have admitted verbally, not in writing, that. It's a question of cost. Um, And they have also told me that they feel as though they are, you know, they spend years in these holding patterns. They get moved, they get moved, they get, you know, this this delay that you're speaking about is very, is very sort of true and profound and it leaves people feeling really helpless. Yeah. And and if I give you an example, we worked with a family uh, a few years ago who, um, they, they were an elderly couple. Um, the The dad had just was recovering from cancer, and the mum was on long term sick from from work. And their daughter, who was in her late twenties, had very complex needs and some behaviour that challenges. Um, and uh, the family informed the local authority that they weren't coping. And given that they were aging, they really felt like their daughter needed a long term plan, and that she needed to move out of the family home. Three years later. Um, that family were still struggling um, with um, really violent behaviour and actually it took a, quite a serious safeguarding incident where a carer was harmed outside the family home um, and, and, and at that point that, that case came to us. Now within six weeks we were able to resolve that case and and we had the um, the daughter placed in a suitable placement but that, that sort of gives you an idea of uh, of the challenges that families are facing. I would like to talk about how MenCap, how you are dealing, how you are trying to deal with this situation. Sure. So I've been at MenCap for about three years now. Before that, um, I was uh, I, I set up a legal team at another um, charity, a deafblind charity called Sense. Um, and uh, I had been aware for many years that people um, with additional needs, with social care needs, were really struggling to enforce their rights. So at the same time as the dramatic cuts to social care funding, there have also been really um, significant cuts to legal aid. So since 2010, there has been an 84% cut to legal help matter starts. And I just want to spend a little bit of time to explain why that is so um, important in the area of community care. So um, 
there are two types of legal aid. There's certificated legal aid, which you use if you're going to court. The other type of legal aid is called legal help. And legal help is particularly poorly paid. It tends to be fixed fee. And if you have to do too much of it, it's loss making. Now, the majority of community care work is carried out in that legal help arena because in the vast majority of cases, it's absolutely clear that the local authority is acting unlawfully. Um, And so the case is never going to go to court. Generally, cases will settle. So there tends to be an awful lot of exploratory work. And frankly, what that means is that lawyers are having to choose between what they can afford to do and what's ethically right. Um, And so... People are struggling to find a lawyer. So as I've said, we know um, that, you know, with our cases, we have a 98% success rate. It doesn't matter if um, the, the, the cases are legally watertight. People simply can't find a lawyer to, lawyer to help them. And at the same time as all of those cuts with access to justice, there have also been really significant cuts to Um, advice and information services within disability um, organisations like Sense and like Mencap. Um, So I had this idea that really um, enough was enough (laughs) and and, and we need to think about how we might be able to use the law um, and how we can help people to access justice. Um, and what I thought was if we can spread the risk acro- across the sector and maybe get lots of different organisations to pay a little bit of money into the pot, then we might be able to create something um, or an agent for change. So um, we've been piloting at Mencap um, through um, a, a project called the Legal Network Project. And the idea is that we act as the legal hub, the centre of legal expertise, um, and other organisations pay a subscription to be a member of that legal network, to be a partner organisation. And the legal network does three things. The first thing we do is we support frontline care staff to be our boots on the ground. So we support frontline care staff to have the confidence and to know when to speak to a legal expert. Um, and once we've got a relationship with frontline care staff, we we support them to build their knowledge around the law. So that could be, uh, so that could be someone, someone, a, a, a care staff member for a local authority somewhere who has a relationship with MenCap. And if, if they see something unlawful or they see something that's not right, they will they will talk to you. Is 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 that what is that right? That's right. So um, it it's actually the care staff who are the care staff for the member organisations of the legal network. Um, so um, people working on the front line with families and individuals who have care and support needs who often feel in their gut that something isn't right, but up until now have had nowhere to take that feeling. You and, know, and they may not have perhaps known what was legal what was not legal is there's there's an education to this as well that's right right. that's right so so that public legal education work generates referrals into our legal network so people become more aware of what um what the rights are of the people that they're supporting um and and then they'll they'll pick up the phone to speak to us um, and at that stage, you know, the, our second work stream is all about high volume early legal help. So making sure that as many people as possible um, get to speak to 
an expert, get to speak to a lawyer. And if they need casework support, then we will provide it. And we do that in a range of different ways. So firstly, we um, we use those subscriptions from member organisations to buy in um, and train more legal caseworkers within our team. We're also developing a legal chatbot, um, which is sort of a, an online legal brain. Um, so, that, that, what, so that would be, where would you find this chatbot? Um, it's not launched yet, no. um, but it will be online on a website. So you can go in and, and type in a question and it will give you a, a, an answer back and, um, and hopefully answer your, your legal question. Right. So, so that's a sort of... How how do you find, just to, to to return very briefly to the to the care staff that you have working with you or help, you know that you you have a relationship with how how do you you find them because they are your own organisation's care staff and that's the sort of that's the kind of relationship that's going on. There. That's right. So we go in and really drive cultural change within our partner organisations on the front line of social care delivery. How old is this, is this process? How old is the legal network? And thus far, sort of what indicators of success or otherwise have you got? So we've been piloting this um, legal network project for about um, 18 months. It's been a huge success. So we started with four member organisations um, that has now built to um, to 10 member organisations and we've got quite an ambitious um, plan for growth. Um, what I would say is the third strand of the work is all about um, capturing data about the casework that we're doing in order to drive systems change. And um, we have... I think, really evidenced that we can drive social change through this model. We are capturing data around patterns of unlawful um, public body behaviour. Um, so we can see through our data that there are patterns of unlawful policies um, being copied by different local authorities. Um, and we've also... Um, carried out strategic casework. So um, one of the cases that we've um, worked on is um, relating to a young woman called Beth, who has been stuck in an assessment and treatment unit now for many years. Um, there are over 2,000 adults and over 200 children stuck in these assessment and treatment units. And the UN and the Joint Committee of Human Rights in this country has recognised that this is one of the largest human rights abuses of our time. Now, this is a strategic priority for MENCAP. Um, we believe that um, most people should never be in these units. And if they are in the units, they should only be there for a very short time. The average stay is five years. Um, so these are really deeply shocking cases. Um, but and, and so we've only been a team at Mencap for about three years. We've only started doing um, casework for about two and a half. And we've only been doing strategic casework for, you know, a, about a year now. Um, but this is a case that um, really has been a driver for policy change and, and has allowed us through um, combining our public policy work with our comms work and our casework to really achieve some some significant changes. So um, there has been a 
a, a, a review into restrictive practices, um, including restraint and over-medication within these units by the Care Quality Commission. The, um, the, the Joint Committee on Human Rights has carried out a review um, into these units. And, and we have had you know, lots of access with the Secretary of State um, and with officials at the Department of Health that we really can directly link to that case. Are, are you getting anything useful from them? As in, as in w- what's coming back from the Department of Health? So we are um, seeing policy change as a result of of um, of the casework and the strategic case that, that work that we're carrying out, and I think that the pressure that's being put on government because of the the, the really significant level of of comms activity that we have carried out linked to the casework that we're doing, um, I think that that's keeping the pressure up on decision makers. And you talked about policy patterns, and and policies being kind of repeated across across various different authorities can, can you give me an ex- can you give me any examples of that sure so we um looking at our data could see that there was an unlawful policy in the south of england in a local authority now um if you're in receipt of social care you can either have that care arranged directly by the local authority. You can have it arranged by a third party provider organisation like Mencap, or you can receive a direct payment from the local authority and you can arrange your care yourself. Now, there was a really specific um, policy within this local authority which said that um, you can't have a, a a direct payment for somebody with a learning disability unless you have a deputyship arrangement. That policy was unlawful. It was an unlawful barrier um, to people being able to access social care. And um, as a result of that policy, people's access to social care was being delayed um, and they were accruing costs because to get a deputy, you know, you, 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 have, to, you, you have to pay money and you have to go to the court of protection. So um, we worked um, to overcome that policy and and had to eventually issue a letter before action um, threatening the local authority with legal proceedings. Um, And eventually they did back down. Um, Now, um, we've we've since monitored um, our data and looked for um, evidence of this this unlawful policy popping up elsewhere, and it has. Um, so for me, um, the data side of things is really critical. Um, and um, I, I think that we can use that data to influence decision makers locally and nationally to really, again, drive systems change. Who, who is, who practically, practically speaking, how does this work? Who, who collects this data and how... If you were an organisation looking to put in to practice this sort of idea, what you know, what would you do? What tips would you have? So we collect that data through our 
um, case management system through our, um, through our CRM, which is a Microsoft dynamic system. Um, but we're starting to collaborate across the sector. So MENCAP are a member of the Care and Support Alliance, which is a coalition of about 90 charities who um, carry out um, campaigning and lobbying and, and communications activity jointly in the social care space. Um, and we're at the start of a journey where we're trying to pool our data. So for me, it's all very well having MenCAP's data, but, you know, the power of being able to capture and analyse and, and gain in data insight from 90 different organisations um, could be a game changer to see those patterns and trends. And if we can, I can just return to the early legal help that you give people in order to challenge these unlawful decisions. I'm wanting to just sort of uh to to just sort of break down for for those organizations who 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 would be looking to sort of deploy these kind of tactics what what they might be able to do so the referrals to our legal team come in through two different routes. We obviously have a helpline. So, um, you know, we receive 12,000 calls a year and we triage those calls. Um, and we use our lawyers to help with that triage in order to identify if there is a legal issue. Um, so so that's a, the first way that a referral might come into us. Secondly, um, if it's through the legal network, then the referral would come in. Um, a, a manager would call us. Um, we would chat to the manager and uh, about the case. And if we, again, if we identified that there was a legal issue, then we would seek consent for um, the family to be able to speak directly to us. There would be a data transfer. So the lawyers in our team identify um, the legal issues. Um, we look at our data, so we collect quite detailed data about the cases that we're working on in order to um, determine whether there might be a strategic issue that we can then work on. So to give you a different example, we know at the moment from our data and from our casework that there are lots of local authorities who are introducing new charging policies. Now, those charging policies um, relate to how much a person needs to pay towards their social care. Um, and those policies are not always lawful. Um, and sometimes they're not always being implemented in a way that is lawful. So for us, we then have identified a strategic issue um, and we have different ways then of trying to, um, to, trying to address that in a strategic way. So we work with about five city law firms um, who um, provide us with volunteers who work with us pro bono and that enables us to really scale up our casework activity. So we have over 100 lawyers working for us um, through those pro bono clinics. Um, and what we've just done is we've just set up a charging clinic. So we're going to focus, we're going to take on a lot of cases um, around charging issues. We're going to really get to grips with and understand what the specific issues are. And that then will give us the knowledge, hopefully, to be able to identify whether we can do strategic litigation to, to challenge some of these unlawful decisions. To, to talk about the, the sort of wider context again, we, we have spoken before about the, 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 situa the situation that we have now in terms of our government is that is that you know there is we have been in this kind of prolonged purgatory while 
the government tries to work out what to do about Brexit. And I was wondering if that had had an effect, as it surely must have, on the, on the lobbying work that MENCAP is able to do. And if it has, what, what, you know, what is the sort of response to that? And I'm imagining that the response is a legal one. Yeah, so I think that um, many organisations like MENCAP have been frustrated in their efforts to drive through um, changes in traditional ways because of parliamentary paralysis. Um, there has um, been very little opportunity to drive through primary legislation. Um, you know, the, the parliamentary agenda has been dominated by Brexit for many years now. Um, and so what um, we've done at MENCAP is look for different opportunities to drive change. Um, and we've put the law um, right in the driving seat. So we, we've looked at how we can work across our communications functions, our campaigning functions and our public policy functions and how we can um, integrate some of those approaches with the law. So with that case that I told you about, um, we have worked really closely with our colleagues in pub our public policy teams and in our communications teams, really to look at how we can drive change through some of the cases that we're working on. And that's been really successful. You, you mentioned earlier that part of a, a crucial part of this landscape in which you're operating is the huge cuts to legal help and legal aid. And I was wondering if you could um, give me an idea about um, some other mechanism that you're using as a way of trying to trying to tackle that, trying to deal with that. So um, I would start by saying I do recognise that um, we're never going to solve the problems with legal aid through um, our legal network project. So a lot of um, the focus does need to be on that strategic work. Um, and we are through the network trying to look at how um, to maximise the use of, of legal aid um, so that we're not part of the problem. Um, but we've tried to be imaginative about how we um, can um, build capacity. Um, and we've got a, a range of, um, of, of different things. The chatbot is one of them. We also have over 100... Um, solicitors from city law firms giving us their time for free um, through a pro bono clinic scheme. And then we have our barristers panel. So we're extremely fortunate to benefit from um, uh, about 30 barristers who are offering their time to us pro bono. We have two clerks from two different chambers who again are offering us their time pro bono to help manage that panel. And those barristers are um, recruited because they're experts in the fields of law that we work in. Um, and they give us tactical advice. They provide casework support. Um, and occasionally, they will take a case to court for us. Um, so the case that I mentioned about Bethany and Jeremy, um, they took that case to court. Um, and um, we had a fantastic success 
um, with that case and the family were actually denied legal aid in that case. So it, it was fantastic that we were able to, to take that case to court with our panel. To conclude, we have, we have a difficult situation. It's a bad situation in terms of the cuts, in, in terms of social care not being given to people who are entitled to it, in terms of unlawful decision making. But you sound to me uh, more hopeful than certainly than I feel, uh, and certainly perhaps than I might feel if I was in in your in your shoes. Though God knows I wouldn't have the capacity to be in those shoes. So I sort of was going to ask you how to to sort of conclude this conversation. How hopeful do you feel? And perhaps there is something here about. Um, the law as a friend to us in in these difficult times. Well, I I am an optimist. <laughs> There's no getting away from that. But I also have seen firsthand how the law can be used to um, to protect some of the most vulnerable in society. And uh, my message to people listening to this podcast would be, don't be afraid of the law. Lawyers can be your friends and we can help um, people's rights to be protected. Um, the rule of law is there to help people and the law can drive social justice. So, um, you know, I, if people want to come and talk to me I'd, I'd be delighted to to give further detailed advice about how we've built that program at mencap um and i um i, I do think that more organizations need to engage with the law um, and engage with lawyers um to to explore how they can achieve their mission carrie thank you very much <laughs>